In Turkey, we have crooked noses, big noses, humpy noses, droopy tips. Wow, a new market emerged all of a sudden, and all my friends started operating, and we evolved together throughout these years. Ladies and gentlemen, colleagues from all around the world, a warm welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. So for the month of July, we are so excited to have the European Masters that we're going to be featuring. And this is thanks to Suta in Germany. There's a really cool company that makes the most fascinating electrocautery instruments. So thank you to Suta for supporting us. And we're kicking off the month with a very remarkable human being. Now, I have to say that I probably owe my rhinoplasty career to this man. And I've got to give you a little background story to how this happened. So I was, um, I'd finished my residency and I had some time off before I was going to start working. And I had gone to my, was planning on going to my first Congress in the United States. And to get to the States, I had to fly through Europe. So I pulled out this really cool book called The Rhinoplasty Book by uh, Anthony Sclafani. And as I was reading through all the names, I saw Turkey and I'd never been to Turkey in my life. And I looked up this one guy and I saw Professor Faisal Apaydin and he lived in the city of Izmir. And, and then I looked into the Bible and it was a very famous biblical place. I thought, I'm going to send this guy an email. And he writes back to me and he says, yes, come and visit me. Now, little did I know he was the president of the European Association of Facial Plastic Surgery at the time as well. But I confirmed with him the day before I was going to get there. And he said, but Cameron, the hotel you've booked in is 500 miles away from Izmir. So <laughs> eventually I changed my hotel booking. And that, that morning, I'll always remember when Prof Faisal the Payton came to pick me up and take me to the OR. So Prof, it is such an honor to have you on the show. Finally, thank you very, very much. You're welcome. The honor is mine. And likewise, I feel very honored to be your, your guest. Thank you for the invitation. So, Prof, there's so much to talk about. I mean, you, you, if I even start at the first thing that struck me is how passionate a teacher you are about rhinoplasty. And the rhino base is something you developed with Dean Turiomi more than two decades ago in Chicago. Tell the listeners a bit about more about rhino base. Thank you very much for the question. We, we are doctors and we should be very good in data management. It's a, it's a very important process if you want to learn, if you want to teach, and if you want to follow our patients. Because it's, the, it's a big mistake of younger surgeons to, to operate and not keeping records of the patient that they operate. When I was a resident, I was too much in love with data management. I wanted a courses, computer programming courses for database. And I became a database programmer when I was a resident. I programmed all the forms that my uh, department was using. And from that day on, I've been working with different computer programs to follow and to record the, the patients because my plan was to be an academic. And if you're going to be an academic, you should uh, make research, clinical research, and you need well-established data. For that reason, I started recording almost everything I was doing. And when I jumped into rhinoplasty 22 years ago, seriously, I was doing it before, but 22 years ago, I said, my way will be rhinoplasty and facial plastics. When I was visiting the Inturium in Eugene Tarly in Chicago, I told them, 
you are wonderful surgeons. I think this is the best program in the world. But the thing is, you don't have a database program. So what do you think if you together uh, design a database? For them, it was something new. Uh, they didn't think it would work, but Turimi is a very smart man. He, he got the idea very seriously, and he made it a thesis for the fellow that he had that time, David Heck. David and I worked on the systemic analysis of the program, and we put too much data in it, and it became functional in a year. From that day on, we're all using Rhinobase, which is the most passionate database program in the world for rhinoplasty. So how do, it's a, it's a, yeah. how do listeners get hold of Rhinobase? Well, something I learned throughout the years in Turkey that you cannot make money from software. If I was working in the States, I could sell such a program with a, with a good amount of money. So I, because of learning these through three years, I said I will take the prestige of it. It's free of charge. Every can you can use it. And we have video clips showing how it is used. And we update it throughout the years because we did the program with my friends in Izmir. And uh, we are updating it again. So every four or five years, we renew it. We come with a new version. So if you want to use it, Cameron, you can simply download it from Google. Just download Rhinobase. You got it. Yeah, it's, it's excellent, uh, especially for, for the residents who are first starting off it had a huge effect on me to it walks you step by step through your your from having to do your history your examination your surgical planning your photo photography it's it's exceptional so make sure you go to rhinobase.net and download that so the Aaron, second one, thing one more one, one yes. more thing about that regarding rhinobase it's a very comprehensive program as a database as an automatic facial analysis tool and for picture archiving utility 22 years ago, I learned from Eugene Tardy, who was the master in facial analysis, how to make it systematic. So from that day on, I'm very serious on facial analysis, which is something a lot of surgeons neglect. So I wanted to systematize it by putting the way I learned from Eugene Tardy into Rhinobase. So I highly recommend my, all my colleagues, not even the beginners, also experienced surgeons, to use it in a systematic way. Absolutely. And Prof, that actually brings me to the second topic I wanted to chat to you about is your passion for photography and uh, media. And I was blown away when I came to visit you in Izmir, seeing you being a professor at the university, running a private practice, being the president of the European Association, but on top of that, running a, a television studio. And, and, and that was just so interesting for me. I, I came away from that. One of the key things was that um, from then on, I took photographs of every single operation that I do. So tell us a little bit more about how you got into that. Cameron, I'm so happy that I could poison you as well. Well, I started, I started being a photographer when I was in high school. I started shooting photographs in high school, in, during high school years. Throughout my life, I was a passionate movie guy. I was watching movies all my life long. I still love it. Most probably, if I wouldn't be a doctor, I would be a film director or something like that, okay? So it's one of my big hobbies, movies. When I was a student at the university, as a math, math school, in, in math school, 
I saw a son, uh, ad saying, do you want to be a cameraman? I said, wow, I would love to be a cameraman in 1983. So in those years, Sony has come up with a new camera, VHS. So there was a center called Audiovisual Center. I went to this center and said, I want to be a cameraman. So I became a cameraman. So for two years, I was a volunteer cameraman for my uh, medical school. I learned something at that time, Cameron. If you are behind the camera, if you are shooting people, they all love you. So I know what it is to be behind the camera. And then I was not only uh, making shootings, I was editing, uh, making scenarios and so on. And when I became a resident, my passion for photography and videography went on. Additionally, I had the computers too. So I had three passions, photography, videography, and computers. And this center became an uh, IT department. And I became the vice chair and then the head of this department, Cameron. Being the head of the IT department of University for 20 years, I had a chance to establish a radio station first and a, a TV station, TV studio as well, TV station as well. So it's my passion. Maybe you saw that I was filming all my operations and I still do because I learn a lot and I can teach a lot too. I have fellows visiting me regularly when they come, the first thing that they learn is how to make real uh, life-size pictures, high-quality pictures, taking videos and video editing. Because this brings you a lot in terms of learning. Because you go back to that shooting, if you did make a mistake, you can understand where you make the mistake. If you want to learn more, watch yourself. So, Prof, on that point, I want to ask you for, because we, we've covered quite a lot in, in previous talks and People speak about it quite often at Congresses about your pre-op and your post-op photographs of 2 and 3D in your rooms. But my question is, photography when in theater, can you give the listeners a few tips on what the kind of equipment is that they need to buy and use? Because I clearly remember old Miguel once saying to me, Cameron, if you didn't take photographs, you didn't do the operation. And I think it's really important that people know what the kind of equipment is that they should get. Uh, well, <laughs> if you want to be a serious record keeper, photography is the way to go. One picture, One picture makes thousands of words, which is a perfect thing to say. So I've got a systematic way of making pictures during the surgery. When I was at the university full-time there, because of being the IT department chair, I had two guys in the OR with me all the time. One is the cameraman, that was the photographer. The photographer was taking about 200 pictures during each operation, okay? Maybe it's too much, but uh, if, I, if you have somebody like that, do that. Nowadays, uh, I'm taking less, but still I'm trying to take pictures of every surgical step. For that, you need to come closer to the area. So you're going to need a zoom lens, and preferably a macro lens, which you're going to have a standard view all the time. The second thing is you should use the surgeon's eye, which means the photographer should be behind me while I'm operating. So the pictures will be exactly the same view that I see the patients. 
The third thing is illumination. These uh, cameras should have preferably a ring flash. Nowadays, ring flashes are cheaper because they are from LED. LED is much cheaper than the uh, strobe uh, flashes. So I highly recommend you to have a good camera. It can be a full frame or uh, APS-C, whatever it is, but they all work fine. But please don't use cell phones, use proper cameras. Use a, use a uh, zoom uh, telephoto lens, micro lens, and also for the lighting, use a uh, LED ring flash. If you have this, you need someone to take these pictures for you. Remember, you have sent me your photographer for me to, to teach her, mm -hmm. which we did. And nowadays, my fellows, sometimes my secretary, they are all helping me with these pictures. Because if you want to do it by yourself, it is difficult because you need to divide your mind into two things. One is the surgery, that is picture archiving. It's no good. Someone should do it. You should be concentrating on the operation, not on picture taking. 100%. So on that point, actually, just it was amazing that Prof was so um, hospitable We uh, that Asha Spence back about three years ago, it's the first time ever she flew out of Port Elizabeth and she had to visit you for a week and you taught her. And for me, there are two really key things in terms of the intraoperative photographs, apart from learning yourself and the records, is the one is you can use these really good quality photographs for research, be that for talks or publications or anything like that. But secondly, what, what we've been doing in our practice now is that we put a little PowerPoint of about 20 photographs of the step-by-step -step of the operation. And then when it's a week follow-up with a patient, we actually go through and I walk them through the operations. And they absolutely love it. They all ask, can I get these photographs? So then we'll email them a PDF of the PowerPoint presentation. Wow, I don't do that. I call it photolog camera, taking at least approximately 75 pictures for each patient, but I don't show them the intra pictures because they, it can be scary, number one. Number two, uh, I think it should be staying on the doctor's side. It shouldn't be staying on the, on the patient's side. It's what I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it depends on the patient yeah. as well. Some people just aren't interested whatsoever, but some people find it fascinating. Agree, yeah. agree. Um, okay, so I think I would love to chat to you a little bit more about is, is one of the big technical influences you had on me was nasal valve surgery. Um, and you've had a, you've published a, a paper that I often actually use um, on the different techniques around nasal valve surgery. Tell us a little bit more about your passion around that. Okay. When I was a resident, one of my topics each year, we were supposed to give a lecture on a certain topic. So on the third year of my residency, I chose the nasal valve because I was very much impressed with nose and with functional problems with the nose. Because honestly, it was a huge challenge when I was resident to functionally open the nose. I was too much in trouble when I was a resident. There were too many things that even my teachers in those years could not address the way I like it. So I read a lot about this topic. I, well, my hero was Eugene Kern from Mayo Clinic. Eugene Kern wrote extensively on nasal valve and I followed all his instructions in his writings. 
Then I wanted to adapt all those into my daily routine. When I went to, then I followed cattle school for some time, for about seven or eight years. When I went to States, then I learned a lot from the Inturium and Eugene Tardy. So bringing all of them, I have my own things in terms of nasal valve. And in, it's going to happen to you, Cameron, as well. You're going to, you're watching many nasters. If you want to use all of our tricks, you're a mixed talent, which is nothing is going to happen to you. So you sh you're going to yeah. design your own technique, your own way after watching all these things. But when we come back to nasal valve, the nose, first of all, is an organ for breathing. So when we are operating, we should do all everything possible to give the patient a possible uh, way to breathe quietly and nicely. Because when you open the nose nicely, the patient can sleep better, during the day can feel much better, during sleeping, eating, he or she can eat much better. Today, I saw two patients, they were both revision rhinoplasties, that I opened the valves, they are very, very happy, even in the short outcome. So for me, I never sacrifice function for aesthetics. It's a very important thing, okay? That means nasal valve. Nasal valve is not only one valve. There are four valves in the nose. One is the entrance, the external valve. The entrance should be fine. Then you go to the narrowest part of the whole uh, airway, which is the internal valve. It is one centimeter inside, 1.5 centimeter inside, and that is the most difficult part to correct when there's a problem. But if you can do it, the patient adores you throughout her life or his life. The third thing is, of course, nasal septal deviations, which I am passionate a lot, as you know. And the fourth thing is the mm -hmm. turbulates in the nose. So when I'm doing a surgery, I always do complex surgeries now. Even a simple septoplasty is not a simple septoplast for me because I have to address these four valves all the time. When I was a resident, I was doing only septoplast. That was it. Wild, wild. But throughout the years, I learned a lot. It's going to be the same for you. When you will see more and more cases, Cameron, you're going to concentrate more and more on these four wells. I sometimes see mm -hmm. colleagues who are making the nose very narrow. I say, why are you doing this? You're ruining the airway. And they say, mm -hmm. but the patient wants it. The patient wants a small, cute nose. But the patient loses her smelling or breathing function. So please do not sacrifice function for aesthetics. And be an honest doctor. Tell your patients that if you do the make, to make the nose too small, she or he will not be able to breathe properly through her nose. This is a very important warning that you should tell. Mm. Well, Prof, that's very interesting because in last week's podcast with, with uh, Prof Dean uh, Teriyomi, he said exactly the same thing. He was like, the single most important thing with rhinoplasty is to improve the patient's breathing. Um, and and if, you, if you go and screw that up, you've really done bad. Forget about the cosmesis of the nose, but if you can't get somebody to breathe better through their nose, don't do rhinoplasty. It's a funny thing happened to me about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I operated a beautiful woman from Izmir, okay? 
And she had a septal deviation and the nose was not very good in shape. I had the chance to correct both. Cameron, you hear me? Okay. Mm -hmm. I had a chance to correct both. A month later, she came to me. She said, I'm very happy. I can breathe very nicely and the shape of my nose is very nice. But you know, we are four friends. Three of my friends were operated elsewhere by the same surgeon. And they they blamed me. They saying that there is something wrong with you. Your your mouth is not open after rhinoplasty. Because after rhinoplasty, your mouth should be open. Because you when you have a cute nose, you cannot breathe. That is the way. So there is something wrong with you. And she was asking me, Doc, please tell me what's wrong with me because I can't close my mouth. My friends are trying to say, tell me something wrong with you, with your nose job. So it was a funny thing that happened to me. I said, bring those three girls to me. Maybe I can help them. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. Wow. Now I'm taking some okay, notes good. here so that the sound bites, the funny sound bites come out. Um, Prof, so just a slight digression okay. here. Apparently, okay. you're quite good at table tennis. Well, uh, I went to a boarding school in Turkey. This school was a very important school because you could enter this school after two exams. And when I was there, it was the second best school in Turkey. It's a high school. So it was a seven years school. We learned English very well there. We learned uh, to speak German. And everybody had to do sports because we were always there. We were boarding school students. There were always someone to play with anything you can think of. I learned how to throw javelin, discus, long jump, high jump, whatever you can think of. It was a fantastic opportunity for young guys. So I started playing basketball, which is my number one uh, uh, sport. Then also table tennis, my second in line. In table tennis, I went really ahead. I became this second best in Izmir when I was uh, in high school. And uh, I kept playing table tennis all my life long. You know what I found out, McHamrin? This is the best sport after 50 if you're a surgeon because you may have a very flexible wrist. You can control your fingers very nicely and you can you have to use your mind while you're playing. So it addresses three things at once. This morning I played, for example, I will play tomorrow. So I play four or five times a week, one hour almost. I always play with Good players. I never play with normal players because it's a waste of time for me. <laughs> so you won't play uh, with me. Well, <laughs> you're a good friend, so I can give you a chance just to tease you, but it's not going to last long. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Prof, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. There, there are listeners around the world. You are yes. in Turkey. I mean, you've got your colleagues and your friends are the possibly some of the best rhinoplasty surgeons in the world. So I'd love to get a little bit more background about what makes these Turkish guys so amazing. Thank you for the question. Turkey is the capital of rhinoplasty now. There is no doubt about that. Even the Inturyumi, 
he is my teacher and he is the best in rhinoplasty in the world. Even he tells the same thing. Turkey is now the Mecca of rhinoplasty. Why, how did it happen? Uh, I'm very honored to be to have foot on this. The reason is, after visiting Chicago in 1999, I have asked Eugene Tardy, who is my father in facial plastic surgery, Dr. Tardy, would you like to have a meeting in Turkey together? He, his department, University of Illinois Chicago, and my department, we made a combined meeting. So from 2000 to 2008, we did four big meetings, Cameron. And in each of them, we had 500 participants, which means wow. we had the chance to educate two-thirds of the ENTs in those years, two-thirds, and one-third of the plastic surgeons in Turkey. So in my mind, mm -hmm. it is the revolution that I had a chance to bring to Turkey because Eugene Tardy was there, the best guy in the Indonesian plastic in those years, and Dean Turimi was always there, the best in external plasty. And we had Tony Bull, who was a legend in Europe from UK. And we have other European and American masters coming and teaching us. So throughout those eight years, uh, I had a, we had a chance to educate too many people. And then in Turkey, we have crooked noses, big noses, humpy noses, droopy dips. Wow. A new market emerged all of a sudden, and all my friends started operating, and we evolved together throughout these years. And I had the chance to educate a younger generation. Again, as part of our society, I became very active in Turkish ENT society, and also in European Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery. I evolved, I got involved in this 21 years ago. And then I worked at all the stages of the academy. I was the head of the website chairman, website committee. I was the head of the fellowship committee. And I became the general secretary, vice president and president. And now I'm the immediate past president, as you know. But something that I learned from Gene Tarly, he said to me, Fazl, we're teaching you. You have one debt to us. You're going to teach other people. So as you know, I'm not only passionate in learning cryoplasty and fish plastics, I'm also passionate in teaching. Because when you teach Cameron, you learn better. It's a key thing. So I always have fellows, Absolutely. I always have residents with me in the, at the University Hospital. So I'm very happy with that. And the same thing happened after a certain time in the plastics society in Turkey too. We have Great guys like Nazim Cherkesh, Nur Chedik, Boris Chakar from Plastics Community. We're getting on pretty well. And from our side, you know, Abdulkader Göksal, Emre Ilhan, uh, Eran Tashdan, these are international, very well known speakers. And they all have brought something, contributed to rhinoplasty. And they know the, mm -hmm. the new flavor of today is preservation rhinoplasty. And in terms of numbers, Turkey is, again, the champion in preservation of plastic, too. So that is, the, we, we have a very well okay, so let's, let's uh, generation, and it's going like this now. If you ask the ENT residents now, which is their favorite operation, they all say rhinoplasty. You cannot believe. All of them are after rhinoplasty. So we have now an army of rhinoplasty surgeons. Istanbul, man. 
People fly over to Istanbul all over the world for two reasons. One is perfect job. The second is cheap prices. The third, the third is one of the best cities in the world. So that's why it captures people. That's great. Eh? So, but Prof, I mean, a shout out to you as well. For the listeners who don't know that, I mean, this is how things started in Turkey, but this is also how things started in South Africa. Because you backtrack four years ago to the city of Port Elizabeth, where I am now sitting in my house, and you came to stay with us here, and you were our honored founding president, can I call that, of SORSA, or the South Africa, the Society of Rhinoplasty Surgeons right. of South Africa. And it's fantastic. That's what kicked it off, our Congress in 2017 in Port Elizabeth. And then the next year, we had um, Jeff Marcus and Spencer Cochran. The next year after that, we had a whole lot of guys come and visit us. And then we had COVID happen, and we started webinars, and we did the World Rhinoplasty Day. And that was just from me coming to visit you, and then you coming to visit us in South Cameron, Africa. Cameron, I, I must, I must, so, I yeah, must maximum respect for that. When you came to Izmir for, to visit us for three or four days, I said, wow, this guy has a fire in the belly. I was too much impressed with your passion to learn rhinoplasty and your passion in life. Then, thank you very much. You invited me to your country. I had a chance to get to know your father, thanks to you, who became my private guide. He's one of the best people I know of in, the, in my life, who had the enthusiasm and joy in his life, which he uh, also scatters around him all the time. And you are like your father. And when I came to Port Elizabeth four years ago, you were just uh, inexperienced persons in terms of organization. You, it was your first time that you were making a society. And until now, I had a chance to establish too many societies and involve in too many societies all over the world, in my own country as well. So I know how things work. I had a chance to help you to work it out too, but your renaissance in rhinoplasty and fish plastics within four years is amazing. It is the fastest growing uh, thing in South Africa. And the biggest, the biggest uh, credit goes to you, Cameron. Of course, friends like Stuart, Stuart uh, and other friends as well, but you are the driving engine. Don't forget that, please. Oh, no, that's great. So, Prof, I wanted to chat to you a little bit about the, the European Association or Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery because you guys are probably the biggest society in the world. Um, and I'm also a member of the society, obviously. So, for the listeners, because we, we, the podcast is listened to wow, more than amazing. 60 countries around the world. Um, it's been downloaded 12,000 times in less than six months. How do people get involved, and why should people get involved with Thank you the for the question. Well, well, rhinoplasty and facial plastics is not only done by ENTs, it is done by plastic surgeons too. When you go back to history, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, there was always a competition, sometimes battle, between these two groups. And both groups were trying their best to dominate the field, okay? Which is understandable because competition brings uh, perfection. And our forefathers, namely Tony Bull and Klaus Walter, they were both uh, educated in facial plastics in the United States because the United States in back then 
was the pioneer country in fish plastics. And today, I think they are still the pioneer country in, in, in many ways. Although in Europe, we are doing great too. And our forefathers, Klaus Walter and Tony Bull, went to states in 1960s and even 50s. They came back to Europe. They started teaching ENTs what rhinoplasty is, what fish plastics is. Actually, rhinoplasty and fish plastics, they are both born in Europe originally. But you know the American, our American friends, they see something, they get it from you, they polish, and then they give it back to you. So they are very good in that. Uh, but just I'm teasing. Uh, they are good in uh, research mindset, and uh, these two guys started the society with a with a club of friends in 1977, which is more than 40 years now, 44 years. And throughout the years, it, it captured attention of many countries in Europe. When people started moving each other and coming together more often. When I joined this academy, it was 2000 in Thessaloniki, the number of members were about 120, okay? Then we had a super general secretary called Pietro Palma from Italy. He was very influential in disseminating facial plastics all over Europe. Under his uh, general secretary position, we reached 1000 members, okay? And uh, I was always working with Pietro and with uh, the executive board in those years. And all over Europe, the enthusiasm grew much and much. And we started visiting the United States more. We are very grateful to our teachers in the United States and to our friends there because they gave us chances to be there, part of them in the meetings. And uh, then we, had, we started having great guys. We started having fellows, a fellowship program always was there. And then we liaised the board examination from United States. Each year we're doing a board exam. You also took the board exam to become board certified in fish plus surgery. It's a kind of a thing that you prove everyone that you're a good, uh, you have enough information in fish plastics. And then in the COVID era, I think it's a, it's a good thing, because every year we make a big meeting somewhere in, in Europe. When COVID came, we were paralyzed. So we, as the executive board, we thought what we could do. And I said to them, look, at my university, I am the head of the IT department. IT department means this education, because I'm the one who started this education at my university about 10 years ago. And I said, we have enough people and I, we have enough expertise to do it. And my friends accepted that. We simply shared our expertise with our friends because in terms of know-how and big great teachers, we have a lot in Europe and in, in, in States too. We asked these guys if they were interested in giving webinars and being part of panels, they'll accept it. American Academy, unfortunately, stayed behind. They couldn't react on time. So we became the torch carriers in the world. The whole world started watching our webinars and panels. We had about 500. Yes. Prof, I need to interrupt you there. 
saucer where the guys who started it. And then the, the EAFPS guys got uh, much better. You're right, Cameron. <laughs> but the thing is, planning, we start, We didn't know that you were doing it. The, this, the planning started earlier because yeah. uh, it's it's my expertise, as I told you that before. You're right. You When you look at the days, you started before us. But the thing is, our planning and our lists were done before that. So we're about to start too. No, I mean, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. You guys are way impressed. And, I mean, you've catered through, and, and it's so much has happened. But what I'm really excited about now is hopefully we're going to be meeting in person yes. in Nice uh, in After September. two years of Corona breakthrough, we had last year, uh, Carlos and I, we organized the annual meeting virtually. Uh, good attendance, but of course, nothing can replace face-to-face meeting because it's not only always mm. sharing uh, your your experience; it's also sharing friendship, network. We are a group of uh, very mm. good friends. Uh, there was a time that I was one third of the year out of my hometown, 2018. One third of the year I was out of my hometown, lecturing somewhere in the world. Which means that literally I was seeing some of my friends more than my friends in Turkey. Like Hossam Foda, Dean Turiomi, Pietro Palma. I was seeing these friends more often than my friends in my hometown. Can you mention that? Mm-hmm. Even you, Cameron, we've been seeing each other at least yeah, three or four times is. a year. I know, but now you've been able to spend time with your beautiful wife. Thanks to Corona, that's true. Yeah. That's true, because Corona showed all of us Life is not only your job, your passion, and you should spend some time for yourself too. You should invest yourself too. And luckily we are we are by the seaside in Izmir, as you know. We have wonderful beaches uh, and nice nature as well. And when you, when you go about half an hour out of town, you go to your summer house, which is a wonderful relaxing area. So we have the best Quality of life in Turkey. All my friends in Istanbul, they want to live in Izmir because of the quality of life. Like like you, everybody wants to come to Port Elizabeth in Joburg or uh, other places, Cape Town. Well, bigger cities, but quality of life in Port Elizabeth is better. Exactly. Yes. So, Prof, I've got I've got one or two more questions I want to ask you. One of the things I want to ask you about is social media. Um, it looks like sometimes people are putting fake results out there. What are some well, of your thoughts uh, around social media? I was the head of the IT department for a long time. And when this social media came, I wanted to get away from that because I didn't want to use the university sources for my own benefit. I never did that. When I quit this post, I started putting something in the social media, but a very reserved fashion. Because I'm a full professor, I cannot be like a social media monkey. I cannot do that for now. And this is something I was speaking with my fellows, with my residents. And uh, unfortunately, in social media, in order to be attracting patients, some people do funny things, okay? Some of them are good, but some of them are bad. First of all, we are bound with the code of ethics as doctors, Cameron. And in social media, unfortunately, I think sometimes some of our colleagues are breaking this code of ethics. So that is that's a very important thing. 
Mm-hmm. The code of ethics can vary from country to country. It's understandable. But there's a international and universal part of it too. For that reason, uh, we're not Hollywood stars. We're doctors. When we try to be acting like movie stars, for me, it's, it looks a bit exaggerated. It's not nice. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we are in the, in the era of social media. Social media dictates everything. So when a young guy finishes the residency with us at the university, he jumps into private uh, practice. He says, sir, I have to do my best to attract patients. I don't have a name like you, and it's going to take years for me to create a reputation like you. In the meantime, what am I going to do? I have to earn money. I have to earn my living. So I have to do something with social media. And uh, the doctors are becoming more busy Mm. spending time with social media, or they hire companies to help them. And these companies put pressure on you too, because you need to feed them with substance. They want in the, they want content. Otherwise, they dictate you the content, so you start giving okay to things that you do not approve normally when you think of code of ethics. So, social media, Cameron, you can't live without for sure. But if you exaggerate it too much, I think it's too much. Try to uh, express yourself with your work, not with some fancy stuff. Uh, otherwise, it becomes funny. Mm. Yeah. I remember in Ira Papel's book, Studying uh, the Facial Plastic Surgery book, there was a quote. I forget who said it, but he said, if a man or woman has integrity, nothing else matters. If a man or woman yes. does not have integrity, nothing else matters. And I think we've got to be cautious of that. Eh? You've got to be careful. Your results are going to talk. And, and, it also reminds me of you telling me that say to me once, you said, Cameron, you have to do your first 100 rhinoplasties <laughs> in the city. You're not going to live in one day. That is true. Cameron, it's a big, big danger. People are showing pre and post during surgery. There's, there's swollen tissues. They do not reflect the reality. Okay. The real, the real outcome you can speak about after a year, not one month, two months, three months, because it is, it is covered with the edema of the tissues. So I like all my cases for the first three months, but there, it happens to all the surgeons. After a year, when you see those some of those cases, you tell yourself, hey, Cameron, have I read this operation? Because not all your operations end with very good results. It's impossible. But if you're an experienced surgeon spending mm. a lot of time, mm. you learn a lot from your bad results and mishappenings. And and it is, you see the website of a young guy and the social media of a young guy who just finished residency and they give the impression as if they are the centers of the world. I see uh, younger people who are claiming that they're doing 700 cases a year. 700 cases a year. Cameron, the companies are making contracts with these younger doctors and these companies are finding patients from all over Europe because they don't ask much uh, price from these companies. The companies are happy because they make money. The younger surgeons are happy because they have a volume 
and they make money too. But instead of making $4 per operation, they do $1, $2. For them, it's fine. And then you see pre and post during surgery. Unbelievable. I, I was contacted... Well, today through Instagram, I was contacted to say that congratulations, I can be in this magazine for the 21 most influential doctors, but it has, I'm going to have to pay them 400 US dollars or something for this. And I thought, these guys can't be serious that you're going to pay a magazine to be able to be ranked. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Enough yeah. said. Prof, two more things. The one question I have. What would you say to somebody who's young and wants to, to make a career out of rhinoplasty? What would be some of your advice to the listeners who, who might be sitting in Indonesia and they just want to get into rhinoplasty? Um, what's the, the, the most of important all, thing you would want to say passion, to somebody? Passion for rhinoplasty. You should have a drive to learn at all costs, like yourself, for example. The second thing is, Nice place to learn it. You should be in a in a good center, ideally, if you want to learn it from the from the good teachers. And in each country, there are good teachers. Of course, I saw doctors using fifty years old techniques, and they claim that they're doing a great job. Fifty years ago, it was okay, but the reason I'm telling you is this: these young guys should find teachers who are up to date, okay? And uh, the third thing is they should go to meetings for learning rhinoplasty from different teachers too. But in the beginning, they will be very puzzled, very surprised because they will see too many masters reaching good results with much different techniques. This happened to me in 2001. I was in Chicago, the biggest rhinoplasty meeting. I saw the masters of those times well, I saw 20 and 20 different surgeries. I said, what am I going to do? Am I going to go and try these 20 different ways? It was a mistake. I didn't do that. I said, stick up with your teachers. You, they, are, they are wonderful. You learned a lot from them. And within two years, by following the school that they taught you, you reach somewhere. So stick up with the school until you feel comfortable with surgery. Okay? Uh, and... Ideally, this school should be a good one. And the third thing is fellowship. It, if they, they miss the chance of being educated mm -hmm. during their residency, they can do a fellowship. As European Academy, we have one-year fellowships, and we have six months and three months observerships too, even one-month observerships. But if you want to be a serious player in rhinoplasty and also in fish plastics, one-year Fellowship is the most ideal way to go. And our fellowship directors in Europe, they are all very competent teachers, perfect teachers. We have 20 centers in Europe. As you know, I'm part of the International Federation too. As International Federation, which is combining all the uh, societies in the world, we are trying to establish centers in the world which are good enough to teach fellows all over the world too. So follow European Academy, follow International Federation to find the best spots for having the best education in terms of fellowship. Of course, 
if you do the fellowship, if you finish your residency, then you must practice. You should have volume. You should operate because your patients will teach you in the end. You're going to try the techniques that you learn from your teachers, but if you do not follow your patients, you cannot learn anything. You just become a technician. So follow your patients, no matter what. It's not, it's not possible to have the best result in all cases, but even though it's not a good result, you have to be by your patient, holding the patient's hand. As long as the patient feels that she or is not abandoned by the surgeon, no matter what the consequences and the results are, they will have enough tolerance to show their uh, doctors. Because if you believe yourself, if you make your patients believe that you did your best with the expertise that you had at that time, yes, it's, it's a good way. The other thing is, when you get more experience, teach and write articles, make research, clinical research, be a good photographer, be a good database guy, be a good videographer, okay? And try to be social and share your experience with everyone around you. I go to meetings sometimes, I see guys who speak a lot, I do this, I do this, I do this. Come on, shut up, show us what you do. Don't use your tongue, show us your cases, then we, we can tell you what you're up to, okay? So uh, I think these are the key things for a young surgeon to follow. No, that's that's great. Eh? Yeah, guys, I hope you're enjoying this. Eh? One of the things that I, I do since visiting you is every single time a patient is put under anesthesia, I stand next to the patient. So I'll hold all the girls' hands. And if the boys want me to hold their hands, I'll hold their hands as well. But uh, it, and, and it's amazing. People speak about it. They say to you that it was just the most precious thing for them because it's a that's when they're giving up their, their control. And you completely under control there. But the moment you've cut the skin, the patient's back well, under control. I learned it that. from my master. I, I had a chance to tell it to you, but I'm telling all my fellows and residents. The, the thing is, Cameron, when the patient comes into the OR, it is a very difficult thing. Because think of yourself. You're going to an OR. You don't know anyone there. You feel abundant. When you see a familiar face, if it is your doctor, it's the best. The doctor is there. With a, with a confident voice telling you, hi, good to see you, relax, we will do our best, everything will be fine. When the patient feels that, first of all, she goes into sleep much happily, and then she w wakes up much happily too. Okay. Absolutely. So, Prof, one last thing. I mean, we've had the most fascinating chat and I really hope it's inspiring all the people around. I was so frustrated not to be able to come to uh, Goxel and Barish's preservation meeting um, a few weeks ago. Tell me a little bit about some of your thoughts around about this new, not really new idea of preservation. Yeah, it's a revitalized technique or refurbishment in a, few in a way because it's, it's more than 120 or 30 years. The thing is, under the under the light of some new research in, in uh, anatomy, there are new things, new nuances that was brought into this preservation rhinoplasty. Some of them went too far because when you learn a new technique, you try to do it in all the cases. Sometimes it is 
overdoing. This is my opinion, of course. I love I loved the idea because mm-hmm. throughout all my life long, one of my major things is the uh, the dorsum. We are all dealing with dorsum with different ways, and. Uh, Turkey, I told you, we're the champions in uh, preservation of plastic. Barish, Göksal, and some other younger guys, they are really the champions for preservation of plastic. But uh, it is still something new. I use it about 10% of my cases. Probably it's going to get a bit more when I feel more confident about some uh, new things. But for the sake of uh, using a new technique, you shouldn't uh, sacrifice quality and uh, your expertise, okay? Because I've been structural plastic surgeon for 22 years. Before that, for several more years, I was a Joseph uh, uh, surgeon. And I have good results with structural techniques, which is the gold standard Today and yesterday, even though preservation has its merits, still the gold standard is uh, structural. But in selected cases, depending on your patient population, for example, I was speaking with Zortikov, Vitaly Zortikov from St. Petersburg. He said to me, Fazl, only one, one fourth of my patients have some hump. Most of them didn't have either humps, okay? So different different patient population. Pure Russian and no humps. When you come to Middle East and Turkey and Euro Mediterranean countries, we all have big noses here. Big humps, uh, droopy tips, white tips. When you have uh, idle cases with a nice dorsum, light hump, in those cases, it works perfectly well. In some cricket noses, in my hands, it works perfectly well. But I'm not a champion in this uh, issue. I'm still uh, in trying some of those aspects. Uh, but for experienced surgeons, it's not that difficult because some of them it's easier. But sometimes, to get rid of a small hump, my friends who are preservation rhinoplasty surgeons are doing sometimes much more than needed in my mind. So I'm approaching this a bit more cautiously. Mm. I'm for it, I'm with it, I'm doing in some uh, selected cases, and I'm trying to uh, decide on a patient with this eye too. Now, put your head as a preservation of fast surgeon. What are you going to do in this case? Okay, I can do this as a preservationist, and then I put my other head, structural and fast surgeon, I would do this. Then at the end of the day, I look at two those two Operative plans, which one is more suitable? I go for that one. So Cameron, you're going to do more about this, maybe, but you also have a different patient uh, population. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, we, we do. And um, the nice thing is in the center now we have piezo, so we can be operating piezo and we've got a whole lot of different people in this country. Anyway, but Prof, uh, uh, from my side and from the listeners' side around the world, what a great chat. I want to encourage the listeners, please reach out to Prof Faisal Apaden, one of the gentlemen of the world of rhinoplasty and a European master. 
he's just a great guy and he wants to teach you. But the, the thing that also strikes me about Prof is he doesn't suffer fools gladly. So don't go in there expecting just to be happy, la, la, la. You'll get put in your place very quickly. So Prof is very good at what he does. He's strict when he needs to be strict. When he's operating, you can see that, that, that things change. When the theater goes on and well, they love to go Cameron, then, uh, then, then the man steps I'm up to the plate. German in the war, as you know. Well, Discipline is our number one first, first thing. If you want to be a successful surgeon, you must have a very good discipline. Otherwise, you cannot reach anywhere. As a, as a, as a uh, person, I'm a maintaining guy. So we like to, to laugh. We like to make jokes. We like to have high quality of life. But the thing is, when it comes to work, they call me the German in, uh, in Izmir, which means that I have too much discipline with my work. I love it. I have one more thing to say. You said about pizza. I love pizza very much. I use it too. But sometimes, not sometimes, one of our, some of our friends do it. I do ultrasonic rhinoplasty, which gives you 100% success rate. So this is, sorry to tell you, but bullshit, Cameron, because... This is just an instrument in our toolbox that we can use as surgeon to help our patients mm -hmm. and to make the operation easier. The, some of the patients ask me, are you using piezo? I tell them, I have it in, in, in my operation table, but the piezo is not doing the surgery. I'm doing the surgery. They ask me, are you doing lace rhinoplasty? I said, I never heard mm -hmm. of it. I'm, I'm out, out of date. Uh, person, go to a guy who does the uh, <laughs> laser rhinoplasty for you. There's no such a thing. Unfortunately, when you put something laser or ultrasonic or yeah, yeah. laser, these things attract people because our young friends are pushing the limits to somewhere to the impression as if these tools are perfect tools, modern things. These old guys, dinosaurs, they don't understand anything from these things. Come on, man. <laughs> so our mm. patients should be very careful with these kind of marketing tools. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh well, Prof. From from um, all the listeners around the world, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, shout out to Suta for bringing the program to us today, and uh, I hope that you have a wonderful summer in Europe. You play a lot Thank of table so tennis, but you have some fantastic rhinoplasty surgeries. And I hope to see you in Nice with, with uh, Prof. Eves. I also look forward to seeing you there, Cameron. And with your new uh, surgery center, I wish you good luck. It's a big thing. It's a big achievement. It's a dream of every surgeon. But on the other hand, you have to, you're in, uh, in charge of many people now. You can't travel as much as you like now. Mm. That's the thing. You are the slave of your surgical center now, Cameron. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. The edge day. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Thank you, Prof. And uh, okay. we will speak. Thank again. you very much. Great.